Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate it. My guest today is Pico Iyer, who for almost 50 years has been acclaimed as a compelling, insightful, and thoughtful writer. He has published widely as a journalist and he's written novels, but he's perhaps best known as a travel writer. He has journeyed to the far corners of the globe and written with a deep sense of wonder, compassion, sensitivity, and radiating kindness. His latest book examines how different cultures conceive of, understand, and pursue spiritual fulfillment and the connection of different places to the quest for inner and outer peace. It's called The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. This is an important, persuasive, and poignant book, one that I very, very much enjoyed and cherished reading. It's my pleasure to welcome Pico Iyer to the program. He joins us on Zoom from Santa Barbara, California. Mr. Iyer, it's great to talk to you. Thank you, Tom. It's really good to be here, and thank you for such really beautiful and generous words. I appreciate them. Well, I have to say, this this book uh, was just a terrific experience to experience. I really, really enjoyed it and um, was... Uh, you know, just uh, provoked to think all sorts of things that I had not yet considered. So I'm grateful to you for that. Um, You write that the half-known life is where so many of our possibilities lie. Um, What do you mean exactly by the half-known life? The half-known life, you know, we're generally so scared of the unknown. But if you think about it, Our life is pretty much determined by things we can't explain. Suddenly you fall in love. Suddenly a pandemic closes down the whole world. Uh, Suddenly you step upstairs in your family home and you're surrounded by a 70-foot wall of flames. This happened to me and you lose everything in the world in a forest fire. And we kind of barricade ourselves behind the little things that we know. But I think really um, what is shaping us is things far beyond our, our control and our grasp. And so they teach us humility, as you suggested, and they also remind us of possibility. I think when I was a kid, I assumed I could control every moment of my life and I could make a plan and things would go according to plan. And the older I get, the more I see that I'm at the mercy of larger forces. And Life often has more interesting plans for me than I have plans for life. You uh, perhaps first encounter this phrase, the half-known life, uh, in, of all places, Moby Dick by Herman Melville, uh, who writes in that book, In the soul of man there lies one insular Tahiti full of peace and joy, encompassed by all the horrors of a half-known life. So it can be a pretty scary thing. It may be... Uh, you know, essential for growth, but it can be terrifying. It can. I'm I'm so glad you picked up on that line. And of course, Melville is an interesting character because he devoted his early life to really trying to answer the essential questions of life, trying to come to grips with God and Satan and the issue of evil and the meaning of life. And he more or less lost his mind in the process. He wanted to answer everything. And I think our life really takes place learning how to live in the absence of answers and conclusions and certainties. I I heard recently that when Pope Francis prays, he doesn't pray for an answer to all his problems. He just prays for the confidence and strength to live without easy 
answers. So you're absolutely right. Melville is telling us don't leave, don't leave home because uh, you'll you'll lose all your your sense of safety and security if you go out into the world. Um, I I think of it a little differently. The half lone life is scary, and in this book about visiting paradise. I go mostly to places of conflict, as you know, and war zones from Iran and North Korea to Jerusalem and Kashmir. But I feel that if I can find hope and possibility in very difficult places, that's a hope I believe in. That's a hope that exists in the midst of real life, and even in the face of death. You can probably tell from everything I'm saying, this was a book that came out of the pandemic, and that very urgent sense of limits that it gave us. Yeah, I mean, my Lord, you know, limits that we many of us had never even imagined before. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Pope Francis. You also write uh, a good bit about Thomas Merton, another great Christian uh, philosopher and thinker and monk uh, who confesses in his letters that the only faith that he could trust would be the one that came to him not as an answer, but as a probably unanswerable question. So how is that, that faith can be premised in the in the absence of answers? Because one might think of faith, uh, particularly in a, in a deity, as, you know, the sort of the, the, the premise of certainty. Uh, you just know it in your heart. You're absolutely right. And I think faith is a form of love. And we all know in our love relationships with our partners or our parents or our kids, nothing is a richer experience, but it goes through valleys and shadows and night and day, and it's not always easy. Yours is such a good question. And I've actually spent 31 years with a group of Benedictine monks here in California, and I regularly go and stay with them sometimes in their enclosure, their cloister. And the thing that I admire as much as anything about them is just as you say, they have this unshakable confidence and often their road is cut off by winter storms and their older monks have to be helicoptered off to their hospitals. They face difficulties all the time and their faith gives them great strength. But what the other thing I admire about them is living in their cells in quiet and isolation they face dark nights of the soul. They face doubt. And I think a monk is somebody who often lives very on intimate terms with doubt as well as with faith. I think Mother Teresa confessed to that same thing. And that's admirable because many of the rest of us speeding through our lives, we don't stop to think about faith, but we also kind of skate past doubt. And we're not really spending enough time in, in quiet reflection to face up to the challenges of life as well as its beauties. So um, no no kind of love that's important ever comes easy. And I think that applies to love for the divine or some kind of truth too. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I remember reading a, a sort of history of religion uh, that the author, and forgive me, I'm uh, blanking on her name. She's the daughter of a very prominent rabbi. Um, she called the book The History of Doubt. Uh, and so it was about religions, all the various, you know, sort of major religions in the world. But she premised it uh, in the notion of doubt, which was interesting. Um, there, there's also there's a, a yearning for paradise. There's a, a longing for it and, and, and even um, to a certain extent a need for uh, a, a solid notion of paradise. I think of the, the great uh, spiritual 
Uh, guide my feet while I run this race. And at the end of the verse, because I ain't going to run this race in vain. There's, there's got to be some, you know, reason to put up. I mean, here's, here's, this is the song of a slave, a person who has been enslaved uh, against his or her will, uh, needing that notion that there's a better life to come there's a better a better place um that, how do you balance the the fact that we need this optimism um but we are confronted with uh, all sorts of um, realities that 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 sort of work uh in a contrary way yeah beautiful i think i think all my books are probably about how to make um hope and reality friends. And you know that at the beginning of this book, uh, I quote the great Nobel Prize winning Irish poet Seamus Heaney. And when he saw Nelson Mandela released from 27 years in prison, Seamus Heaney dared to commit these now quite famous lines, once in a lifetime, hope and history rhyme. And so he'd grown up in Northern Ireland in the middle of troubles and terrible sectarian conflict. And he knew as the slaves know, that history leaves scars and memories that nothing's ever going to erase. But at the same time, he knows that a life without hope is no life at all, and that we have to sustain a sense of hope in spite of history, and maybe because of history, just as you, you suggest. And where I live in Japan, they sometimes speak about life being a joyful participation in a world of sorrows. Because as they see it, it's an old and seasoned Buddhist culture. Everybody goes through suffering. Uh, all of us get sick at times. Every single one of us knows death and probably loses loved ones. But nonetheless, our challenge is to find a joy in the midst of that. And so actually, 20 hours after lockdown was announced here in California in March 2020, my mother, who was 88, was rushed into hospital in an ambulance because she was losing blood very quickly. And I had to fly um, through three ghost town airports from my little apartment in Japan to be with her. So I was with her when she came out of hospital, when she was wavering between life and death, thinking life is always going to be difficult. But the only paradise I trust is one that I can find right here, right now, in the midst of this difficulty and in the midst of, um, in the face of death. And I think paradise is a misleading word, but probably what the slaves were thinking about when they sang that hymn, which you so beautifully delivered, and what I and lots of people were thinking about in the pandemic is just what you said at the outset. How do we find peace? How do we find calm and confidence in a life that's always going to be throwing, <laughs> throwing up new challenges? Did your mother get through that experience? She survived that. As it happened, she she died um, 15 months after coming out of hospital. But really, that was a blessing that the pandemic offered because I got to spend nearly all her 15, final 15 months with her, which wouldn't have happened if I was traveling, as usual. She celebrated her 90th birthday in high style a couple of months before she died. And I was thinking that if somebody had told me when I was in college, you'll have a parent who lives to 90, I would have said, no way, There's, that's too much to hope for. That would be a, a blessing beyond, beyond imagination. And I guess that speaks for the sense that I had a lot during the pandemic, that every day when I woke up, 
I could either be really frustrated with all the things I was missing out on, or else I could be really grateful. Here I am, I'm healthy, my wife's healthy, my mother's still healthy, we get to spend all this time together. I hadn't spent six months straight at my mother's dinner table since I was nine years old. And so one way or another, um, of course, it was a terrible loss to lose your mother, but there was so much to be celebrated. And I, I'm sure most people listening to this conversation know that feeling that life is never black or white. Absolutely. Well, I certainly know that feeling quite uh, acutely. Just last weekend, I took my 91-year-old mother to uh, New Jersey to celebrate the birthday of her kid brother, who's turning 90, uh, and her <laughs> older sister at age 94. The three of them were together, and it was an incredible blessing. And we were all, all of the family who gathered for this, were all very, very aware uh, of how lucky we were uh, that these three you know, who had grown up together, and they had a pretty rough life, uh, particularly at the beginning of their lives, um, that they were they survived it and have, you know, thrived for all this time. Um, is, is paradise, does it have to be equivalent to heaven? Or is that just a, a Western Christian notion? You know, I think of the, the Latin antiphon uh, in Paradisum, where they, they talk about uh, the angels and the martyrs welcoming you to heaven, do 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 is it is it uh, a commonality between cultures that paradise uh, is equated with something heavenly? Such a beautiful question, I, and I think heaven is one form that paradise takes, but as you suggested, not the only form. Um, I live in Japan near the ancient capital called Kyoto, and when I step into a temple there. Quite often, written on the ground at the entrance in Japanese are the words that say, look beneath your feet. So for the Buddhists, paradise is right here, right now. For the Muslims and Christians and other groups, it belongs to the afterlife. For me, paradise really is a way of seeing and being in the world. And to that extent, it's within our grasp. So the monks that we were describing in the Christian tradition, I think they're, they're walled enclosure or cloister is a kind of paradise because they're confident that their Lord will look after them and protect them and loves them. And so that's a beautiful form of paradise. Um, my Buddhist friends would say, I'm just sitting here meditating and that's giving me the uh, sense of appreciation of everything around me. This, this is my paradise. And I think one of the challenges with paradise is, of course, everybody has his or her own notion and they often conflict. And, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time in Jerusalem. And on the one hand, it's the most moving and magnetic place I've ever been. I, although I'm not a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew, I'm reduced to tears sometimes by by Jerusalem. And I'll walk in the early mornings through the pre-dawn dark on those barely paved stones in the old city. And I'll go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I'll sit in this little kind of rocky cave where there's just a, an uneven shelf and a little flickering candle. And I'll feel completely uplifted. I'll, I'll feel I'll get a taste of the divine. At the same time, of course, Jerusalem, the great city of faith, has been a city of conflict for more than 2,000 years because each group's notion of faith um, differs from the others, even within Islam and Christianity and Judaism, there are different orders contesting what exactly is the true form of paradise. So paradise is always going to be a vexed issue and probably an individual issue. But I love that story about um, your 
your three relatives who were in their 90s. And again, for me, the pandemic was a time for taking nothing for granted. And um, it's wonderful you can celebrate this amazing fact. I'm not a big fan of technology, but probably thanks to technology, people live to their 90s even when they have a hard beginning to their lives and something to celebrate. Absolutely. And we'll talk about your wonderful writing and experiences in Jerusalem and some of the other many places that you visited uh, in the uh, creation of this terrific book, The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. The author is my guest, Pico Iyer, and we will have more with Pico Iyer after a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR, where you're listening to Midday. And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up Monday, the problem with plastic. Pollution from plastic poses a grave environmental threat from the petrochemicals it takes to make it, to toxic exposure while using it, to the waste it creates when it's dumped in underdeveloped countries. I'll speak with Lisa Ramsden. She's a senior plastics campaigner at Greenpeace. And Jennifer Congdon, deputy director of an organization called Beyond Plastics. So they join me Monday on Midday. If you've just joined us today, my guest is the writer Pico Iyer. We're talking about his latest book, The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. To join our conversation, 410-662-8780, our email midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday, WIPR. So, Mr. Iyer, you write, um, the fact that nothing lasts is the reason why everything matters. I wonder, what, what makes ephemerality so sort of innately valuable? Well, thank you. You've just picked out the single most important line in the whole book. My agent actually <laughs> wanted me to make that the title of the book because <laughs> she felt it was so essential. So. Well, I just got lucky. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But um, I think it exactly speaks to what I was saying about taking nothing for granted. You know, most of the time, even right now, I'm skipping blithely through life and assuming everything will continue the way it is today. With the pandemic, suddenly I was reminded I wasn't. And suddenly I was appreciating the things that I had been sleepwalking past. And the fact I knew my mother's not going to live forever, nor is my wife, nor am I. Let's, let's make the most of this moment, just as you were doing last last weekend with three loved ones in, in their 90s. There, it, it, it takes a very acute form. You don't know how much longer they'll be there. Let's seize this moment and not just drift through it. And, you know, I don't want to spend these precious moments accessing TikTok or or just exchanging one-word one texts with my friends. This is my rare chance to be alive and to be with people who are healthy and alive. Let me give my attention fully to that. I, I think attention is the most valuable luxury that we have, and I want to be careful about how I use it. You also um, uh, you know, embrace the importance of ambiguity. You say that ambiguity and that which we don't know are essential for growth. And I wonder, what are your personal metrics for growth. You mentioned that you go three or four times a year to a Benedictine monastery. 
um, the, the time you spend in places like the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, um, just observing and, uh, you know, sort of absorbing the, that incredibly uh, interesting and, and fascinating environment. How, how do you know when you've grown? I'm not sure I've ever grown, but I try to put myself in the way of things that are going to give me inspiration and hope and light. And when I wake up in the morning, I think, what's going to cut me up and make me feel despairing? And what's going to open me up and flood me with hope? And during the pandemic, for example, when taking walks, uh, exposing myself to nature always gave me a sense of beauty and wonder. And I think there were, there were people who do that too. I, I love what you say about ambiguity because the other reason I call this the half-known life is my sense that in this age of information, we actually know less about the rest of the world than ever before, partly because we're just getting it through screens and secondhand reports. And as you know, from having read the book so carefully, I begin in Iran. And that was an interesting case study for me because I, I had been researching Iran for 30 years before I set foot there. And I'd even published a 350-page novel partly set there, though I'd never been. So I thought, I, I'm well prepared for this country. And within four hours of arriving there and hearing uh, the Beatles on the radio in my, my hotel lobby and seeing CNN on TV and being greeted by an Iranian guide who spoke better English than I do, I realized I don't know a thing. And that exactly as you say, uh, my, my notion of Iran was very unambiguous before. It was very two-dimensional. And as soon as I was faced with the human reality, I realized I couldn't think about easy terms of right and left or us versus them or um, black and white. So I think the other way that I grow is by trying to take myself out into the world, into the places we hear about a lot but perhaps don't know about, Cuba and Yemen and North Korea and all these others, many of which I, I describe in this book. And sometimes I remind myself that I belong, and I think you're probably about the same age as I, we belong to the first generation in human history that can experience the rest of the world firsthand, either if you're lucky and you have the time and resources by traveling, or just by walking across the street in Baltimore or Washington DC or New York City and tasting the spices of Vietnam and hearing the stories of Ethiopia and listening to the rhythms of Haiti, which are right here in our in our major cities. So I think I want to expose myself to things that leave me speechless, that that I can't begin to explain or anticipate, and other cultures is a part of that. The book is The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. Pico Iyer is the author and my guest. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Um, one of the paradoxes you uh, point out about Iran uh, you say, I was having to make sense of heart-shaking, passionate displays of religious surrender from those who wish to have no part of religious rule. So there, there, there's a dichotomy there. Um, uh, the, the places you visited, uh, holy places, uh, the guide that you introduced us to in Iran, who was actually literally risking his life to be there because he had snuck out of the country, and he sneaks back in to... Uh, be able to have those experiences, um, and, the, and and you know, at great personal risk. Um, but it is interesting this this uh, bifurcated uh, reality uh, that the, uh, the 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 religious rule part of their lives is something they're not interested in, but the religious experience is. 
Exactly. And that was a kind of subtle nuance that I, I couldn't get so easily in California. I had to be there to experience it. And just as you say, um, my very first night in Iran, I go to the largest mosque on the planet with a young kind of driver, more or less a taxi driver who speaks very good English. And we go into the innermost sanctum and I look across the room and his hand is on his heart. And he's walking backwards, so he never presents his back to a saint who's been dead for 1,200 years. And there are tears welling in his eyes, just as you said, just a picture of Islamic piety. And then we walk back to his car, and he tells me that his wife is a blonde Yorkshire woman in England who's awaiting his return and awaiting their first baby. And he tells me he paid a human trafficker $2,500 to smuggle him into England in the back of a truck breathing through a tube so he wouldn't be de detected. And then he tells me how the British government gave him a lawyer and a translator. They worked for three years to gain him asylum status in England. And then just as you say, having risked his life to flee Iran and get to England, he's risking his life every summer to come back to Iran to see the mother and the mosque and the hometown that he misses so much. So just one person's experience is so much richer than our ideas of it. And as you said, it explodes all our simple assumptions, uh, either that Iran is a country of dissidents or that Iran is a country of um, pious uh, Islamic souls. It's a country of both within the same person, and we can't reduce it to simplicities. It's funny, before I went there, various people told me, um, if you're traveling in Iran on an American passport, you're going to have to be aware of one thing, and you're going to have to be really careful. Everyone's going to want to be your friend. Everyone's going to speak, want to practice their beautiful English with you. Everyone's going to invite you to dinner in Iran, precisely because they're not the same as their government, and they know we're not the same as our government. And the only reason that didn't happen to me was because of my dark skin. They thought I was Iranian, so they didn't pay <laughs> as much attention to me as if I had blonde hair and blue eyes. But I couldn't have got a warmer welcome. And again, I, I could have traveled there on a British passport, but people here in the know said, go on an American passport, because it's Americans. They're really keen to see. The government is shouting death to America. The individuals I met were, you know, have loved ones in this country and were very eager to make contact with an American. Uh, and you, you ticked off some of the places that you uh, visited for this book, Iran. Of course, uh, Kashmir, Sri Lanka, Jerusalem. We've talked a little bit about North Korea, Belfast, which you call the soul of civil war, even the Australian outback. And in each of these places, there is this close proximity or association with violence. So there you are in search of paradise. Um, and, and, and you also look uh, once more to Melville. Uh, who said uh, every scripture must make a place for devils, uh, and, and those closest to the holy are often those on closest terms with demons. Why do you think that is? Why is there this, um, you know, as I say, proximity between, you know, demons and deities? And there's no light without darkness. There's no light without a shadow. Uh, and, and, and that's the cycle of, of, of human life and human existence. As you say, every one of the places I visit is a place of conflict, is a war zone of sorts, full of violence. Every place I visited is a place of light and beauty 
and hope. And I suppose my book is about, as you said, the outset, keeping keeping both of those and not writing off the world as all darkness and assuming that North Korea is only a, 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 an evil place or a cruel place. It may be in the hands of unkind leaders, but that doesn't mean that the 25 million North Koreans are incapable of kindness. As I was listening to you, I was remembering how I went uh, in the final chapter, as you recall, to the holy city of Hinduism, Varanasi. And I'm of Hindu origin. Both my parents are 100% from India. And even I was freaked out by Varanasi because night and day there were flames to the north and the south, reducing dead bodies to ash and people carrying stretchers through the narrow lanes to commit their loved ones' bodies to the water or to the flames, and people delightedly bathing in in waters that are 3,000 times beyond the maximal level considered by the WHO to be safe for consumption. So it's a wild and intense, it's maybe violent place too. And one day I was standing by the river and seeing this cacophony, and suddenly I heard two people call my name. And they were two Tibetan Buddhist monks, an older Tibetan and a younger American uh, who has been in that tradition for a long time. And my American friend came up and he surveyed this confusion. And he said, isn't this glorious? This is reality. This is birth and death and everything in between. This is the world we have to embrace. And I was startled and humbled, but I thought there was a real truth to what he was saying. And I, in my sort of limited way, was seeing it as con congestion and confusion. I was kind of freaked out by the chaos. But he, more his elevated eyes, realized this is the world we have to give ourselves to. We can't turn away from real life. Um, and I think going to places of violence was a way of reminding me that even places of violence are full of many other things. And we can only come to terms with them by looking at them. I think Virginia Woolf said wonderfully, you don't find peace by running away from life. You find it by going into the heart of it. And as you know, the Dalai Lama, who's at the center of this book, is another holy person who finds his confidence and hope by traveling to Jerusalem and Belfast and Washington, D.C., and moving right into the heart of real life, walking through the streets of India where people are in great need. That's where his life has to take place, not on a mountaintop or entirely in a monastery. Yeah, you uh, have a long association with the Dalai Lama. You you uh, wrote a biography of uh, His Holiness. You've uh, spent a lot of time with him uh, on trips. You've, you've traveled with him uh, many times. Um, you say you're always struck by his realism, um, and that's an interesting observation uh, for a layperson like me, you know, looking from the outside, uh, what I assume the Dalai Lama to be uh, and, and the, the animating uh, forces behind his work. Um, uh, you tell a great story about, uh, you, you heard this happen multiple times um, when he gives lectures. Uh, people would stand up and ask, what are you supposed to do when you're disappointed by a dream? Uh, how did the how did the Dalai Lama respond to that? Again, thank you. You've picked out one of the central moments of the book. So yes, after his public lectures, they'll usually say, if you really dream of bringing peace to the Middle East or combating the environmental crisis or being friends with everybody around you, and it doesn't work out, what do you do? And he looks at the questioner with great kindness and warmth, like an uncle or a godfather, and he says, wrong dream. 
<laughs> you have to be really realistic and rigorous and uh, with your dreams. Uh, and otherwise, that's an insult to reality, and you're going to end up disappointment, disappointed and maybe in a state of despair. And of course, he is a realist because he's been leader of his people 83 years now, since the age of four. So he hasn't been a, in a position where he can deal with wishy-washy ideas or romantic notions. He has to be in the here and now. But um, it also struck me when I was listening to him how important it is to shape our expectations appropriately. You know, I, that my silly example is uh, if you think of marrying Denzel Washington, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> but if you think of finding virtues in your partner that even Denzel Washington might envy, that could happen right now. Don't set your sights too high um, or you'll you'll be broken yeah man manage expectations as the corporate types yes. would say yeah perfect yes exactly <laughs> yes per that's a perfect translation manage expectations with a view to to giving more to life and and doing more justice to the situation around you which is never going to be perfect and is never going to live up to your ideal and the pandemic really reminded us of that but the pandemic even while closing doors was opening doors and if we were just fretting about the pandemic, we were failing to see some of the things that it was making possible for us. Yeah, you write that a true paradise has meaning only after one has outgrown all notions of perfection and taken the measure of the fallen world. Um, what do you think about the the impulse? Uh, at least it, I have the impulse. I can't universalize this, but I, I have the impulse to, to take the measure of the fallen world and to think that it's equally balanced by that which is good and the, and the human condition uh, that, that uh, or the, the side of the human condition that is positive and, uh, and beautiful and for which I am grateful. Is it important, do you think, to have them in equal measure? Uh, or do we understand that, you know, the world is mostly fallen and we've got to grab the beautiful moments when we can? Well, needless to say, I'm no expert, but I'm right with you, Tom. I think we should hold them in equal measure. And I sometimes worry if we follow the news or we're too caught up in our little screens, we're only hearing about the negative. And I feel it's the positive and the, the redeeming aspects of humanity that are getting left out. And so I try to turn my attention to those because I think we're sometimes in imbalance and we're living in the middle of war and a climate catastrophe and many things that can make us pessimistic. We're also living at a time when you have three loved ones in their 90s, and I had a mother who lived to 90, and so much to, to celebrate. So let's not neglect um, the good stuff in life, which I think is where people um, often, you know, we turn our attention away from that. And <clears throat> as everybody says, news concentrates on the extraordinary and the remarkable, which is often disaster or murder or war. And by its nature, it doesn't include the millions of people whose lives are actually quite happy and harmonious and the good things that are happening. And so I'm going to these places that are known for difficulty and and violence, as you said, to redress the balance and, and to make sure that I don't forget that uh, there's hope in Jerusalem and North Korea as much as there is here in California. Pico Iyer, his latest book is The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. We'll have more on this terrific book after a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday. Stay with us.
You're tuned to Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is Pico Iyer, one of the foremost intellectuals of our time. He was raised in India, England, and the United States. He's taught writing and literature and journalism at Harvard and Princeton. He's been a columnist for Time magazine. He's published 15 books that have been translated into 23 languages. He's given numerous TED Talks, which have been viewed more than 11 million times so far. He has written a biography of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which, with whom he has been close since he was a teenager. His latest book is a collection of essays about his travels to the far corners of the world in which he ruminates on how different cultures understand the notion of paradise. It's called The Half-Known Life, In Search of Paradise. To join us, 410-662-8780, our email midday at wipr.org, and our Twitter handle at midday WIPR. So, uh, Mr. Iyer, I'm interested in this notion of paradise as a place. Um, I was raised in the Christian tradition, and I, as I've always understood it, one of the the big differences between Christianity and uh, Islam and Judaism is that um, the the temple in Christianity is kind of portable. Um, uh, in Christ, one can can bring the temple. Uh, with you wherever you go, whereas in Jerusalem it's a place. You know the the uh, and Islam it is a place located you know in the same city. The Aboriginal people uh, whom you uh, have encounters with in the course of this book, uh, you say they call themselves Christian, but they didn't understand why Europeans had to go into a special house to talk to God with their eyes closed. Um, for them, you say the promised land was nowhere but the land around them. Um, where did this notion of, you know, a specific geographic location for paradise come from? Uh, and how wide, widely shared is that notion among various cultures that you've examined? Hmm. Well, places, I think, do have holiness the way people have holiness, Places have charisma. And I think the Aboriginal Australians are a very good um, example because I think by some accounts they've been living on that land for 60,000 years. And so the land itself is a sacred text and is is infused with meanings for them that a visitor like myself couldn't understand. But I do feel that um, the most durable paradise is the portable one, the paradise within, as you said, because places, unfortunately, are prey to the ravages of the world. They're, they're temporal, and something inside us seems more long-lasting. Having your house burnt down is a good reminder of that. I had so, so many memories and beautiful associations invested with my house, but flames approach it. That's the end of the house. But the day after I lose my home and everything I own, I still have inside myself, my wife, my mother, my favorite song, the books I turned to for solace. And I came away from that experience very much feeling that, that paradise like home had to be within. Uh, and that I think those sacred places are portals to the place within. They're reminders of the holy and the sacred that we don't want to forget about. But I think when a Jewish person goes to the Western Wall to pray, they know that the paradise and the piety and sanctity doesn't inhere just in the stones of the wall. It's 
it's the fact of prayer, the act of prayer, and something inside themselves and inside their divinity. That's what it's really bringing them to. Uh, and so I, I think probably most people have the sense that the paradise they trust is one that they have inside themselves, or as you said before, an afterlife, something that awaits the, the faithful person. We have a listener on the line uh, from Baltimore. Janie is uh, with us uh, here on Midday. Welcome to Midday with the author of The Half-Known Life, Pico Iyer. Thank you. Um, I-, I wanted to refer back to the part of your conversation on uh, personal growth. I've been a firm believer that heightening one's level of consciousness can change our personal perspective as well as shape and direct our personal growth. And the ability to obtain higher levels of consciousness are not dependent on your socioeconomic status, on your personal education. It's about your intentions and whether or not you go after life to look at all sides of it and not just to reinforce your own. Oh, well, thank you for that perspective, Janie. Um, Pico Iyer, what do you think? Thank you, Janie. I 100% agree with you. And I think during the pandemic, all of us were going through similar circumstances, but each one of us was making something different out of it. And it was a perfect um, exemplification of what you're saying. I get get that kind of wisdom from spending time with the Dalai Lama. And I travel by his side every day of his working day when he comes to Japan. And I go into his hotel room every morning at 8.30 in the morning. I've enjoyed my beauty sleep and a nice big breakfast in the, in the hotel restaurant. He has woken up and wherever he is, he spent four hours, his first four hours of every day in meditation. And that means that every moment through the day that follows, he brings absolute attention and joy and kindness to. I'm 22 years younger than he is, and yet I'm exhausted just watching him go through the day. But for me, it's a perfect exemplification. You know, it may be raining and very, very cold and conditions are difficult and I'm fretting against him, and he's just radiating this calm and this joy. And I think that's because he has worked so hard to, in your terms, elevate his consciousness. And I think the pandemic reminded me of two things. One, we don't have much control over our external circumstances. But two, and more important, we do have a lot of control over our, our internal circumstances. And as you say, it, it's regardless of skin color or economic circumstances or all that other stuff. I think almost every human being has the capacity to respond to situations with appreciation or with resentment. Uh, and, and consciousness is, uh, is what determines that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we all have perhaps much more agency than we think uh, yes. when it comes to this. Uh, not that we <laughs> exercise that control or agency in in the right way, but or certainly I don't, uh, and wish I did <laughs> a better job of it. Um, I do. Before we uh, run out of time, I want to talk a little bit about Jerusalem, um, which is kind of it, it seems to me kind of at the center of this book. I mean, of all the places you you go and and tell us about, um, but you describe Jerusalem as a riot of views of paradise, overlapping at crooked angles, till one was left with the sorrow of six different Christian orders, sharing the same space and lashing out at one another 
with brooms. So it's even, it's not just internecine, uh, or, or, or it is also internecine uh, fights as well as uh, trans-religious fights that are going on in this, in this uh, incredible melting pot that is Jerusalem. Uh, wh- why why is, is it such a significant place in a search for paradise? Because it's the holy city for so many people, and even for those of us who don't belong to those three monotheisms, like myself. So you're exactly right, Tom. It is very much the central chapter in the book and in the middle of the book, and there's a reason for that. And as you said, the six Christian orders who share the Church of the Holy Sepulchre will beat each other with brooms if the Franciscans step one centimeter over the Greek Orthodox territory. And the Sunni Islams are at odds, Sunni Muslims are at odds with the Shia Muslims. The ultra-Orthodox Jews are not happy about their secular cousins. So, as you said, within the traditions as well as between them. And yet, in spite of all that, it's an exalting, transporting place. And I would recommend anyone, if she can, to visit Jerusalem because it shakes with something powerful and, and holy in spite of what humans do. And I suppose as I say that, it almost dramatizes the contrast between the man-made and you could say the heaven-made or the natural-made or something that's not. So men are making our texts, our divisions, our ideologies saying, my reading of the Bible is different from yours. But at the same time, there's this church and there are these candles and there's a sound of prayer that's inviting us to something much bigger that we all have in common, even those who are not Christian. Um, And it's almost like the place where some of the lowest forms of religion and some of the highest converge. And it asks us that difficult question, how will we hold on to the best in religion and in the world, even in the presence of the less exalted. Yeah, and you know, here's this place that is the home to the three biggest monotheistic religions in the world: uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And you write, and this sounds uh, incredibly plausible to me, that Jerusalem has made as many skeptics of believers as it has made believers of skeptics. Um, so it, it it goes both ways. Why do you think that is? Because it's so because it's so charged and it really shakes you up. And if you go there feeling that you're in a state of great piety and calm, it's going to overturn you. Um, but if you go there feeling you're a great skeptic or uh, atheist, it's going to shock you too. But you're right. I, I, I read a 900-page book about the history of Jerusalem, and it's unfortunately almost all bloodshed. Uh, King, the the person who created the Church of the Holy Sepulchre killed his own son and uh, and wife. And even during my lifetime, the Pope himself was at one moment not allowed to pray in that church, which is to many people's way of thinking one of the holiest places in Christendom. But it actually speaks to your earlier question when I think about it. You asked me about my methods for growth, and one of the main things I do is try to spend time with monks. And they're always going to be human, fallen people, as are the nuns that I spend time with. And yet I think monks and nuns have given themselves to three questions. How will we live? How will we love? And how will we die? And I can live my life in such a state of unawareness, just concentrating on the trivialities. I'm really grateful to go back to monks, to nuns, to Jerusalem, to ask me those essential questions. And it doesn't matter how I answer them, and it doesn't matter which religious orientation I'm bringing to them. I think it's important for all human beings to address those questions. And 
Even if we can't find an answer, we will be richer for doing that. Indeed. And you quote William James in the book, uh, who says, "We're, we're like dogs in a library. We're surrounded by extraordinary wisdom and knowledge, but entirely in a form we cannot decipher. Uh, and you have helped us decipher a good bit of it in this book. So congratulations on it. And thank you so much for a delightful conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate you giving me so much time and reading the book with so much care. It's, a, it's an honor to be with you. Well, the honor is mine as well. Pico Iyer, his latest book is The Half-Known Life in Search of paradise. That's it for us today. Coming up Monday, the problem with plastic. We're going to talk about how it's hard to recycle. It's hard to deal with on any number of levels. Midday's director and engineer is Shania Maps and Luke Spicknells. WIPR's operations manager, Taria Rogers, Rob Sivak, and Mallory Pinkard Pierre produce our program. Austin Coglin from Clean Cuts wrote and recorded the Midday theme music. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. Have a great weekend. This is 88.1 WIPR.